Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Marvel superhero films have grossed more than $24 billion around the world since Spider-Man hit the big screen in 2002. We're going to talk about the late Stan Lee's legacy on the film industry. But first, a story about the impact of Stan Lee. Juan Cole appears in this program and many media outlets talking about the Middle East. He's a professor of history at the University of Michigan. His new book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Among Emerging Empires. But Juan is also a big Stan Lee fan. His Marvel collection of comic books started the comic collection at Northwestern University's Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections. Juan, thanks for joining us. It's always great to be on, Jerome. Um, tell you, it seems like your attraction to um, Stan Lee is almost philosophical in nature. You you are drawn to his philosophy of life. That's right. I, I think Stan Lee, uh, Gene Roddenberry, uh, a few of these, uh, I think of them really as uh, science fiction or speculative fiction writers of the great generation who had served in World War II, had uh, fought against Nazism, uh, brought their values into their fiction, uh, not in a preachy or overt sort of way, uh, but they made a stand uh, against racism uh, at a time in American history where in the 60s and 70s where race was a, a a tremendous issue and big changes were happening in race relations. How did you start your comic collection? Because you had a Spider-Man number one the whole bit. You were, it seems like, on the ground floor here. Oh, yes. Well, you know, um, I was an Army brat. And uh, when you grow up on bases around the world, we had two long tours in France, uh, one in, in, in the Horn of Africa. Uh, uh, the local TV maybe doesn't hold much attractions for you, and you're you're forced to entertain yourself in other ways. So Pulp Fiction and comics were a big part of my childhood and, and young adulthood. And you ended up with a thousand uh, comics, a thousand Marvel comics you ended up donating to Northwestern. How did that happen? That's right. Well, it, it's not that hard. You know, they come out every month. <laughs> if, you, if you follow a few titles uh, for years, then you end up with that many. And I used to collect. I mean, um, uh, when I was a kid, I used to trade. Uh, and uh, uh, you would you would get comics that uh, you didn't care to keep, and then there were others that you really wanted to fill in your collection. And uh, kids used to go door to door and just see if there were other kids that had things that wanted to trade. So I built up some of my collection that way. And uh, how did you end up donating them to Northwestern? Well, I was uh, I, I got a, a very nice scholarship at Northwestern that would take me abroad for much of my senior year uh, to Beirut, and <clears throat> I um, had no place to put the my, my collection and. We all know what happens to collections if you leave them with the moms. That's why their uh, <laughs> old ones are so expensive is because they don't get kept. So anyway, I, uh, I, it occurred to me that um, uh, since I was at a university with a research library, the great thing about university libraries is that they don't get rid of their books, whereas public libraries do after a while. Uh, so I went to the university uh, library, and they directed me to the uh, to the McCormick um, Special Collections, uh, and uh, and I just laid this out that look, I have these 
these copies and would you would you take them uh, and it so happened it was just good luck that uh, they the Northwestern was at that time forming a center for uh, the study of popular culture and so they were actually eager to have them and this was 1973 and and Stanley ended up coming to see the collection inducted that's right so uh, I had been involved uh, the year before in a radio program on WNUR, uh, which was a review of of the comics that came out that week. And I and a a couple of other students uh, were uh, were anchors on that that show. I kind of horned my way in among them and uh, and used to do reviews. And so one of my colleagues, uh, Wally Podrazic... And Wally used to be a contributor here at this radio station. Some listeners might remember him, talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, all the rest of the popular culture stuff. Absolutely. Well, uh, he he stayed true to our uh, our interests, and uh, uh, he's uh, uh, an important commentator on these things. So he was the one who had the audacity to reach out to, to Marvel and see if Stanley would come and dedicate the collection. It would never it would never have occurred to me. And 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 lo and behold, Stan agreed to come. Now I, I imagine he did this in part because he saw his work becoming important, it becoming culturally important here. I think so. I mean he didn't say that, but it's my speculation that you know, we know from many things that Stan said, he, he used to do these editorials at, at what he called his bullpen. And uh, he, he, he revealed that, you know, at, at points in his life, he, he was just ashamed of what he, what he did, writing comic books. And, you know, you would have a swanky cocktail party there in Manhattan, and people in, you know, in tuxedos would ask you, what do you do for a living? And uh, it made him sheepish. sheepish. So... I think the idea of a university reaching out to him and wanting to uh, collect his work, uh, it, you know, it gave him a, a, a certain uh, respectability that I, I think he, he, he himself uh, wondered if he had. Juan, do you ever wonder if you should have hung on to that Spider-Man number one and, and have any regrets about just donating it to your alma mater there? Oh no! I, I'm I'm really happy about how I was able to give my collection to the university, and then it became the core of a much larger collection. I think they have like twenty three thousand uh, comics now. It's a, a really important center for understanding this uh, aspect of popular culture. And when I gave those comics, you know, they were uh, they were not uh, that prominent, and you know, before. Uh, there was the Hulk uh, television show. Actually, the general public was uh, pretty much unaware of these things or thought they were just for kids. And it's only in the last uh, uh, 15 years, as Marvel Studios became this uh, powerhouse, that the true genius of of these characters and their stories has penetrated uh, really the globe. Well, congratulations on on your prescient uh, wisdom in popular culture, in addition to your wisdom in the Middle East. Juan Cole is a professor of history at the University of Michigan. His new book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Among Emerging Empires. He's also a Stanley fan whose Marvel collection started Northwestern University's Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections comic collection. Thanks a lot for joining us and sharing uh, your experience with Stanley. Thanks so much, Jerome. 
We are going to talk about Stan Lee and the impact he had on the film industry. I mentioned at the top there that his films have grossed more than $24 billion around the world since Spider-Man hit the screens in 2002. And uh, with us to talk about uh, the Sam Lee legacy on the film industry is Milos Stalik, director of Facets here in Chicago. Nice to see you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Charles Coleman is here. Uh, He's the program director at Facets and a big Stan Lee fan. Thank nice you, to Jerome. See you. And Carrie Lynn Reinhardt is with us, associate professor of communications at Dominican University. She's the author of Fractured Fandoms. Thanks for joining us, Carrie Lynn. Happy to be here. Um, Milos, why don't you start us off? I mean, is were the Marvel comics uh, great for the film industry? Well, they saved the film industry, you know? I mean, I think as uh, Juan was just talking about, I mean, the comics themselves were kind of... Uh, an element of when we had a big division between highbrow and so-called lowbrow culture, which, of course, was the popular culture, right? And so comics were a part of that. And when th- then as Hollywood saw its empire diminish, the Marvel comics and comics came in and really saved the Hollywood film industry by becoming the first kind of global, universal movie product that could travel anywhere and everywhere. And ultimately, as you as you said, uh, how much money that, that they made, they really saved Hollywood. Uh, what's the downside of Marvel saving Hollywood? Is there a downside? Well, the downside is, is what gets pushed out, you know, because obviously there's a question of screens. And, it, and when one superhero movie is playing in an 18... 18- uh, uh, theater multiplex occupying 16 screens that leaves very little room for anything else. And so that's been to the detriment really of Hollywood financing or having an interest in financing uh, movies that cost a middle amount of money, $20, $30 million to make, would never make that much. It focused everything on these mega blockbusters that would be billion-dollar box office grocers to the detriment of limiting everything else, which led to a flight of filmmakers because they could not find work to other platforms like Netflix, television series, making films independently, all of which then ended up uh, fighting for screen space. Darn, Spider-Man ended up uh, inspiring a fight for screen space. That's ironic. Um, Charles, do you have some thoughts on Stan Lee and what his cultural impact is? Well, one of the things when I was growing up, I was always a big fan of comic books, and I'm very familiar with what your previous guest said about protecting your comic books from your parents, because <laughs> I had a pretty extensive collection myself. But when I started reading the things of the characters that Stanley created, he was always so delightfully positive. He had phrases like um, face forward, true believers, and also uh, with great power comes great responsibility, which I think he appropriated from Voltaire. (laughs) But the main thing is he actually – his superheroes had these extraordinary powers, but they didn't protect them from the kind of personal dilemmas that people would face in real life. Like the human was always primarily the main thing as opposed to just being a superhero. Like Spider-Man – despite his great gifts, was able to still have personal problems and with school and relationships and Iron Man had the congenital heart it, problem and it, things like that. Is little boy Charles look, looking, would he ever imagine that, that these things could dominate the film industry? Actually, I've always thought that 
the delay in Marvel becoming such a commercial powerhouse was was I was was baffled by that because it's such a warehouse of characters. So I always thought once someone tapped into that, they would realize they would have a treasure trove of creatures known as the mutants and the X-Men and the Inhumans and Thor and Black Panther, for example, which served to be a, a, a lightning rod for becoming a global phenomenon against all odds and perceptions that people had about that particular character. And if anything, Marvel also exposed people to the African-American superhero with not just with Black Panther, but with Luke Cage and Falcon was one of the first heroes who was actually a buddy of Captain America's, and he also had the first black woman superhero, namely Storm from the X-Men. Well, and this happened kind of also as a conflagration of two things. One was digital technology, which came in, so allowed all of these incredible special effects to be generated, and Hollywood running out of the American market, so having to expand globally. So these things kind of was a miraculous coming together of three forces. I'm talking with Milo Stalik and Charles Coleman from Facets. Also with us is Carrie Lynn Reinhardt from Dominican University, author of Fractured Fandoms. Um, do you want to weigh in here on the legacy of Stanley and film? Well, I think one of the things to also consider when you're talking about Stanley and film is the way in which he embraced the fans and empowered the fans. And right now in modern Hollywood, if you don't have the fans behind you, you are not going to have the level of success that's really necessary to help these types of films capitalize and profit. And the way that he created this type of relationship with fans goes all the way back to the comic books and how he, in those letters to the editors and the way he responded to fans back then, he helped fans feel like they weren't weird for liking this thing that was looked down upon at that time. And it seems like throughout his entire career, he was constantly embracing that love of the comic, that love of the thing that's the outsider, and embracing the fans and the people who were willing to do that. He never seemed to let go of that. And people, they didn't just love the comics, they loved him for it. And this entire love fest then that became <laughs> fandom is so important to Hollywood these days. And I think a lot of that can come from Stan Lee. Well, Milos was talking about how it kind of edges out the art, the the, the kind of auteur vision. Uh, you didn't run around and see Francis Ford Coppola doing doing fandom stuff. Uh, how does that fit in? Did, 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 did this edge out art? And there's definitely that argument to it. And I know a lot of people who are concerned about the idea that we have kind of like this homogenized approach to movies these days because we just have the superhero movie and that's the main type we see. But then I think one of the fascinating things that Marvel has done in their cinematic universe is bring in auteurs to provide their own particular vision on things. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. I think the Kenneth Branagh Thor was kind of maybe a misstep for the MCU, but they have tried to allow people like James Gunn for the first Guardians come in with his particular approach to filmmaking and to essentially try to marry then the more corporate top-down approach to making films with the more auteur, finding my own voice approach. 
We're talking about Stanley's legacy in film. Um, you know, Charles, you were talking about his approach to race, and um, he had uh, he was woke before there was woke. I, I, you know, that people are circulating something he wrote in uh, 1958 about uh, race and bigotry. Uh, how does how does that? Um, he was that was also kind of prescient and, and waiting to happen in a way. Well, he had a something called Stan's Soapbox, where he would actually would. You know, talk to the fans directly, and he used as an opportunity to really discuss some pretty uncomfortable truths. Like he talked about uh, 1968, he wrote one about the assassination of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and talked about how we all need to be together, we all need to get rid of our prejudices and our biases against each other, which he brought about by a lot of the characters he created, because when you have these people with these special powers and and they're different from everybody else, that was actually a clever way for him to subversively discuss diversity within a society and tolerating each other despite the fact that we might have these differences, but we're all on the same planet. We're all human beings. And he did it in such a way where it was, as our caller just said, he's, 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 he championed things that you know, human values and the superheroes, all they did was saying you got to be the person first and the powers are, come later. Um, Lynn, why does that – are the the lessons not learned by the general populace about this? Because, you know, here we are. We, we're, we're going through some uh, lessons with our current president about this. Uh, do, do you feel like the fandom got his message? I think a large segment has. And what's interesting is I started looking into this yesterday because as a social scientist, of course, I had to go find my data. And <laughs> on on Twitter, I started seeing some interesting reactions happening because there were some people who were posting about how Stanley actually has a negative history. Like there are things that he did in his past that we should not be ignoring. And then there were people who came to the support of Stanley and they – said, well, you shouldn't be talking about these political issues, of course, or or it's just another, what they call an SJW, another social justice warrior attack on a person who can no longer defend himself type of thing. And then you still have people who are saying he is one of the original social justice warriors. He's one of the original SJWs. So what I think is happening is you see Stan Lee as the person and his memory being brought into kind of these cultural wars we're having right now in fandom. It's the same thing that we've seen happen in the Star Wars fandom recently. And it's something happening in the comic books fandom called Comics Gate right now. So there are people who, they all seem to recognize the need to be against racists and be against misogynists and things like that. But the approach that they want to take and how they want to be against those things can vary differently, differ, um, can vary greatly from person to person, from essentially camp to camp at this point. You know, I was thinking uh, as I sat in the movie theater this weekend, and I was watching the Robert Redford movie, which admittedly is an eighty-two-year-old leading man, and and Peter Bogdanovich came on in a trailer before the movie, 
And he said, you know, thanks for coming to the art house cinema and being a part of this thing. And and he was up there. He's really old. And I looked around me and I thought, <laughs> boy, I might be the youngest guy in this theater. <laughs> Is the writing still on the wall for for art house theaters? Well, the thing that the thing that bothers me about all of the superhero movies is is exactly this issue of fandom which essentially means that's kind of a cultish relationship and the question for me is is how do you get a young person who is a part of that fandom of this superhero cult to branch out to go out to experiment to, to broaden their horizons out of something which is essentially modern mythology, having these superheroes be a part of the folk mythology that we subscribe to and that we grow up as as young people. Mm-hmm. How do we get young people out of that and how do we break that cult? Because then the mechanism of the cult is a very dangerous thing because you can apply it towards anything else. You can apply it to politics. You can apply it to history. You can apply it to consumerism, to anything else. So once a cult, every cult is dangerous. Well, one thing I'd like to say, though, is this, 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 situ- this scenario that's being discussed about the superheroes dominating our cultural airwaves, this is really nothing new because you have the number of sequels to Star Wars. You had Jaws, which is the first movie to occupy many screens and, and disaster films. Disaster films. I mean, they saved Hollywood. This is this is uh, you know the sun having no alternative shown on the nothing new. This is this is the same thing. I mean, it just comes down to people making uh, distinctions with a difference and making uh, assessments on what's valuable in our culture. And to me, the benefit of the superhero. Uh, phenomena, regardless of where it takes us, is the fact that at the moment it's a it's a it's a laboratory for ex- exposing people to other cultures for which they had been previously insulated. Like when you look at Black Panther, you talk about Afrofuturism, you're talking about cult costumes, you're talking about this plant, this country called Wakanda, where they were isolated but had an advanced technology. And to use it to good purposes where everybody as a citizen in that country felt the benefit of it. And, you know, it's one of these things. And they, they brought in other factors. Politics, despite their enhanced natures, was something that was going to put this country in a perilous position, which is something we can certainly learn about today. Charles uh, Coleman is film program director at Facets. Milo Stalik is director at Facets. Carrie Lynn Reinhardt is associate professor of communication at Dominican University. She's the author of Fractured Fandoms and has lots of material about popular culture on her website, playingwithresearch.com. Thank you all for joining us and talking about the film legacy of Stan Lee. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about From Soot to Solar, the Clean Energy Transformation in Illinois. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're undergoing a worldwide energy transformation, but it can be hard to get a handle on how your energy supply is changing here in Illinois. With us is Jessica Collingsworth. She is Midwest Energy Policy Analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists, and their new report is From Soot to Solar, and it lays out how Illinois' energy supply is likely to unfold in the future. Thanks for joining us, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Also here is Celeste Flores with the Lake County. She's the Lake County Outreach Director with Faith in Place. Faith in Place works with over a 1,000 houses of worship on good stewardship of the environment here in Illinois, and she's working on uh, coal plants in Lake County. Great to see you. Thank you for having us. Um, Jessica, first of all, tell us, I mean, we're in an interesting place here in Illinois. New legislation has kind of come on board, and it almost maps out a, a future for us. What's going on? Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, our new analysis, Soot to Solar, Illinois' Clean Energy Transition, we look at those benefits under the Future Energy Jobs Act that passed in 2016 and those great benefits to renewable energy and energy efficiency that will come through that. And then we also look at what we can do beyond that. So the faster the state can retire its aging, inefficient coal plants, a critical step in this clean energy momentum, the greater the benefits will be for communities across the state. So not only do we look at the benefits of the Future Energy Jobs Act, we also look at additional coal plant retirements and those benefits that those would bring through um, community benefits as well as public health benefits and economic benefits to the state. Now, Illinois is in an interesting place. It has a lot of nuclear power, as we're going to be talking about in the next segment. Mm -hmm. And we have a Plenty of coal plants, too. How many coal plants are there? How, what, what Can you give us the parameters of coal in Illinois? Yeah, definitely. So we currently have 15 operating coal plants in the state of Illinois. Um, a lot of them, uh, we have one in Waukegan, obviously, that we're going to talk about today. And then we also have several in central and southern Illinois. So looking based on EIA's 2018 data, it's about 32 percent um, of Illinois' power mix currently is And coal. how many do you want to get out of the power mix? Is there... Um, Ideally, UCS would like to see all of them close. Uh, We really think that clean energy through renewable energy such as wind and solar and energy storage can replace that generation from coal plants. So this report, Sutta Solar, looks at a subsect of those. So we look at closing nine plants total and the benefits that would come economically as well as public health-wise in closing those plants. And let's talk about the the Waukegan plant in particular, which seems to be number one on the list uh, for for closing. And Celeste, tell us about the plant in Waukegan. You, I guess, there's a long running movement to close it there. Yeah, there is. Um, and I before I and I speak, I've started to um, just name the sacred land we're on. Um, so just want to, you know, take time to recognize the first um, people, the nations. You know, there's over a thousand nations that could claim um, Chicago as home. Um, so the Potawatomi is the biggest one and the most well known. And, you know, we still have um nations and indigenous folks living in Chicago. So just want to raise that up. And it's the same thing in Waukegan. And yeah, I've been um, collaborating and volunteering with Clean Power Lake County. We're a grassroots organization that um, is asking the city of Waukegan for a just transition for the city of Waukegan to have a plan for the coal plant to retire, because it's not a matter of if the coal plant's going to retire, but when. Um, So we've been doing that work since about 2014. 
Can you tell us a little about the health effects of the coal plant? Because it sounds like the one in Waukegan is situated in a place and is having the, out of all the 15 in the state, which probably has the worst health effects. Yeah. Um, you know, we've done different studies and one in three children um, in Waukegan have asthma or asthma-like symptoms, which is significantly higher than the rest of the country. Um, and, you know, the report also goes into um, preventing premature deaths. It goes into um, asthma emergency bills. Um, so really, you know, our water is being contaminated with mercury, with a lot of other um, toxic chemicals, but our air is also um, being affected. Tell me about the movement to close this plant. You, there's been quite a few people at it for a while. Yeah, so we've been at it since about 2014. Uh, maybe a couple, you know, some people say 2013. I came in in 2014, and um, it's really local residents of Lake County, Waukegan. Um, really, a lot of people that are just affected by this. People that didn't know. I grew up in Park City and didn't know there was a coal plant until I actually moved back from college and was looking to get involved at my church um, to start recycling. And a sister was like, well, how do you feel about retiring a coal plant? And I was like, oh, like, yeah, where? She's like, here in Waukegan. And I had no idea that there was one. Um, so I think that happens a lot. So we've been working. We've been trying to advocate, working with our elected officials. Where working. is it in Waukegan? Is it's it on the lakefront on... It's, it seems like nice land if you wanted to do something else with it. Yeah. And, you know, I think something that we've been very vocal about is making sure we clean up not only that, but the five other super fun sites we have in the area and making sure that the area stays for the community. You know, about more than 70 percent is Latinx, African-American, you know, people of color. And we want to make sure that those people that are living there continue to be able to live there. So we don't want high rise condos. We don't want gentrification on our lakefront. Um, Jessica, can you tell us a little more about this plant and what, what it, uh, how it compares to others? Yeah. So when we looked at this plant, to your point, has a lot of negative public health um, impacts. And through that, we looked at pollution from this coal plant, the Waukegan coal plant, causes an estimated 18 premature deaths and 118 asthma attacks per year, is what we found through our analysis. We also looked at, in one of our scenarios, in Sota Solar, is the closure of the Waukegan coal plant and the E.D. Edwards coal plant that's outside of Peoria. And closing both plants early would avoid an estimated cumulative total of 178 asthma-related emergency room visits, 264 heart attacks, and 431 premature deaths compared to if the plants were to operate until 2030. So this is a large plant, has a lot of negative public health impacts, and our report kind of digs into what those negative public health impacts are and the benefits that could come from closing the plant early. I'm talking with Jessica Collingsworth and Celeste Flores, and we're discussing the new report, uh, Sutta Solar, and it's from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about nuclear waste. Stay tuned for that. Uh, what do you replace it with? Do you, is there enough energy to replace a coal plant or 15 coal plants if we take them away? Yeah, that is a great question. So our analysis also looks at this. And what we found is that the generation from retiring the two remaining coal units at the Waikiki site can be reliably replaced with an equivalent amount of generation spread across um, PJM, which is the grid operator. So the plant can close tomorrow with no grid reliability issues. And then in addition to that, there's four operating oil-burning combustion turbines, and those can also close with solar and storage, either put on site or nearby with no reliability issues. Oh, 
what keeps it from being closed? The last thing? Politics. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. somebody's got to, somebody owns this. They've got to pay money for it or something. It's, it's, a, it's a, something they want to make money on. Yeah, um, I think the Energy Energy, who owns the coal plant, has been very good at having lobbyists um, in Waukegan talking to our elected officials, being in their ear, telling them that they're good neighbors. They sponsor a lot of things. We have many different groups that will accept $1,000 scholarship donation. And for me, I'm like, you're selling out my community for $1,000. I think we're worth a lot more than that. Um, so it comes down to, you know, having those relationships with elected officials and being able to hold them accountable and saying that, you know, we voted them in their, you know, help working for us, um, not the other way around. What were the last coal plants that were closed in Illinois, Jessica? Was it the two here in Chicago? Or is it- yeah, those, um, that's like the big ones in the Chicago areas, Fisk and Crawford. And our report also looks at those plants and the efforts taking place to redevelop those sites um, and the groups that are working on that now. So, uh, yeah, those are two recent ones in the Chicago area, and we look deep at those in the case studies within our analysis. Also, you as you sprawl things out, you talk about the potential of solar, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, solar that's going to come online hopefully soon in Illinois. We've got very little right now. I read the statistic of how mm-hmm. little we have, and it's startling uh, because a lot of places have a lot. Yeah, that's a great point. So our report also looks at this about the benefits um, through the Future Energy Jobs Act of how much solar is going to come online. Uh, So the opportunity for growth in Illinois solar is very strong. It currently only represents 0.07% of the state's electricity generation as of August 2018. So we have huge room for growth. And this is going to happen not only on rooftop solar, but through FIJA, we'll also have community solar where folks like myself who don't have a roof or the opportunity to have solar on our roof will buy into solar uh, community solar programs and can have solar that way. So lots of opportunity for solar development in the state. And our report, Sit to Solar, looks at those benefits under FIJA and the additional benefits that could come with additional coal plant closures. Uh, Celeste, what are people in Waukegan thinking about uh, solar? Is there community solar ideas floating around? There are. Um, I think it's something that's um, intriguing a lot of people, knowing the Future Energy Jobs Act passed and knowing how we can use solar for all, which is part of the um, bill. And just making sure that communities and our city officials um, know about these opportunities. So, you know, having meetings with our elected officials in Waukegan and Zion and North Chicago and getting the city to invest in this and seeing the opportunities of having renewable and solar um, rather than a dying coal plant. Ultimately, Jessica, your report um, goes into figures that about um, what, what could happen if we closed a lot more coal plants than we we think we can. I mean, we could actually go faster towards clean energy than people Mm -hmm. think. Yeah, definitely. So we do look at that in the report. We look at how this uh, clean energy transition could be accelerated in the state with additional coal plant closures and then the benefits to public health and the economy from that. We also look at the reductions in carbon emissions and how they would fall under the additional coal plant scenarios. So by 2030, for example, carbon emissions would fall by 30 Three percent below, excuse me, 2016 levels from the closure of the Waukegan plant and the E.D. Edwards plants, which we look at. So a lot of great benefits could come from additional coal plant closures in the state. If people want to take a peek at Soot to Solar, your new report, where do they go? 
Yes. So if you go to ucsusa.org-sutta-solar, you can find everything there. So we have an executive summary, both in Spanish and English. We also have a full report and five case studies. Three of the case studies are also in Spanish. So check it out. Lots of information. Jessica Collingsworth is Midwest Energy Policy Analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists, and the report is Soot to Solar. And Celeste Flores is Lake County Outreach Director with Faith in Place. And if people want to get in touch with Faith in Place and learn more about what you're doing in Waukegan, what should they do? You can go to www.faithinplace.org, and they can see all of the great things we're doing in Lake County and throughout the state. Thanks for joining us. And coming up after the break, we will stay on the energy beat and we'll discuss what the U.S. should do with its nuclear waste. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Illinois gets more power from nuclear energy than any other state in the United States. But the odds are most of us have no idea what happens to the highly radioactive waste that's created by the 11 reactors here in Illinois. We're going to talk about it with Kevin Camps. He's Radioactive Waste Watchdog for Beyond Nuclear. It's a nonprofit, uh, anti-nuclear nonprofit. Thanks a lot for joining us. Nice to see you, Kevin. We've Thank you so much you for having before. me. Um, where does the nuclear waste go from re- nuclear reactors? Well, when it comes out of atomic reactors as highly radioactive irradiated nuclear fuel, it's stored in wet indoor storage pools that are very deep for a number of years. And this is like Fukushima. People probably are familiar with what happened with Fukushima. Well, there are uh, reactors in Illinois that are identical in design to Fukushima. They're called General Electric Boiling Water Reactors of the Mark I design and Mark II, which is very similar. And at Fukushima, just to give you an idea of how dangerous the pools can be, yes, the reactor releases that breached containment and got out into the environment. That led to 160,000 nuclear evacuees who still to this day, so many years later, can't go home to Futaba and Okuma, these two host communities of Fukushima Daiichi. But if the pool at Unit 4 had gone up in flames, and it almost did, that number could have gone up to 50 million people having to be evacuated from northeastern Japan. That's not me saying it. It's the Prime Minister, Naoto Kan, who served at the beginning of the catastrophe, who said that a year later. So those exact design pools are here in Illinois. They are packed to the gills worse than at Fukushima Daiichi, meaning the consequences of a fire would be worse. So what we call for is hardened on-site storage. Get it out of these vulnerable pools into hardened dry casks. Now, explain the theory behind what we were going to do with all these uh, this nuclear waste when we started the nuclear industry. That Surely the government had some idea that we weren't just going to pack it into pools that could catch on fire in, at, at plants all over the United States. Well, there was a really bad idea back in the day in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. It was called reprocessing. It was extracting the still fissile plutonium-239 and uranium-235 from the high-level radioactive waste, supposedly for reuse as reactor fuel. And actually, there was a reprocessing facility not only proposed but built in Morris, Illinois. It's called the GE Morris Reprocessing Facility. And due to a fatal design flaw, thank goodness it never operated because reprocessing 
is the worst possible thing you can do with high-level radioactive waste after generating it in the first place because the emissions to air and water are just off the charts bad. So after the idea of reprocessing, I guess the idea became Yucca Mountain. People might be familiar with the Yucca Mountain where people were going to go to Nevada and bury all our nuclear waste, which is still an idea. Well, um, the piece of legislation that singled out Yucca Mountain, Nevada, is affectionately known as the Screw Nevada Bill of 1987. And essentially, it was where the rest of the country ganged up on a sparsely populated state at the time. Nevada only had one member of the U.S. House of Representatives in 1987. The rest of the country, other targeted states, ganged up together, thought they could force it on Nevada. Nevada has fought tooth and nail, has grown in population, now has several members in the U.S. House, and they are ready for the fight. They are not going to consent to being the nation's nuclear garbage dump. And Nevada has no nuclear power plants, and they feel like they should not be the receptacle for the nation's nuclear waste. A big part of the dynamic in Nevada is they took one for the team, so to speak, with nuclear weapons testing in Nevada. A lot of people died. A lot of people got sick with cancer, and they are fiercely resisting being targeted again a second time. I'm talking with Kevin Camps, and we're discussing radioactive waste. He is with the organization Beyond Nuclear. And I wanted to um, to kind of get us up to the new plan for uh, radioactive waste. Uh, the Trump administration has been trying to uh, both revive Yucca Mountain and go into some temporary centralized storage facilities. Explain the new idea. Centralized interim for storage facilities have been proposed in the past, going back even 25 years. The, the previous round targeted Native American reservations. So there are huge environmental justice implications with these proposals. But um, – I know your previous guests invoked the indigenous people of this area. Well, wouldn't you know that one of the leaders of the resistance was a Sac and Fox and Pokagon Potawatomi Indian named Grace Thorpe in Oklahoma on the Sac and Fox Reservation down there. But her people are from here, of course, in Michigan. And her father is pretty famous, Jim Thorpe, athlete of the century. When the U.S. Department of Energy came to Oklahoma and targeted her reservation with money, hey, we'll give you all this money if you just think about becoming the high-level radioactive waste parking lot dump for the country, centralized interim storage, she said no way. And she actually called for a special election, got the tribal council members who were interested in taking that money fired, essentially, voted out of office quickly, replaced with anti-dump tribal council members took her act on the road and helped 60, 60 other reservations who were likewise targeted wow. to beat those dumps away. And uh, here we go again. The current proposals now, because Yucca is going nowhere, essentially, is the borderlands of Texas and New Mexico. You have Holtec International in southeastern New Mexico. You have waste control specialists in extreme West Texas. The two sites are only 40 miles apart. This is an attempt to turn that neck of the woods, which is Hispanic communities, some of them are majority Hispanic towns, into the nation's high-level radioactive waste dump. And it's not interim. It's de facto permanent once it gets there. How do you get the waste from all these different places to that place? With many thousands or tens of thousands of high-level radioactive waste shipments by truck, on interstates, by train, on the rails – even by barges on surface waters like Lake Michigan, passing through most of the lower 48. 44 of the lower 48 states 
are specifically on transportation routes to Yucca Mountain, which is still in play, as you've said. This is how New Mexico's and Texas's and Nevada's problem becomes all of our problem. We all live along these routes. And Chicago is very hard hit by these plans. 25% of the rail shipments bound for Nevada would pass through the Chicago area. 54% of the truck shipments bound for Yucca Mountain, Nevada, these are national figures, would pass through the Chicago area. Hundreds and hundreds of barge shipments on Lake Michigan, the source of drinking water for Chicago, are in play. And if one of those shipments were to sink in Lake Michigan, if one of those trucks were to catch fire, if one of those trains were to crash into a bridge abutment and release the contents of the shipping container, it could be disastrous for this area. That's why we call it Mobile Chernobyl, uh, Fukushima on wheels, uh, dirty bomb on wheels. I'm talking with Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear. He is in Chicago to talk on a panel about this topic. It's on uh, shipping high-level radioactive waste by and crude oil by train. It's called Crazy Trains. It is happening tomorrow at the Nuclear Energy Information Service Office on Diversity in Logan Square. And uh, when I read about this and I looked into the, what the World uh, Nuclear Energy Association is saying about transportation of nuclear waste and the industry says, well, we do this all the time. We actually have really good ways to do this. There's never been a problem with shipping waste. Um, we can do this thing safely. They they believe in their ability to do this. And they say, you know, you've got all sorts of toxics moving all sorts of places all the time in this country. And we're we're doing it too. That's the problem. Now you're putting high-level radioactive waste into that mix with explosives, with flammables that could breach these shipping containers, release the high-level radioactive waste into the environment. Another issue besides severe accidents, besides uh, terrorist attacks upon these shipments, is even routine incident-free shipments. They're like mobile x-ray machines that can't be turned off. They're emitting gamma and neutron radiation at a certain rate. And if you have external contamination on the outside of the shipping container, that dose becomes much worse. In France, for example, and there's a French company involved in the Texas centralized interim storage proposal, Arriva, now called Orano, they had an epidemic of hundreds of contaminated shipments externally in France. So they have skeletons in their closet. Some of those shipments, on average, the average contamination was 500 times permissible. One of those shipments was 3,300 times permissible. In the U.S., permissible is one to two chest x-rays per hour. It's 10 millirem per hour at a distance of six feet away. So can you imagine 3,300 times permissible? That's up to 6,600 chest x-rays per hour at a distance of six feet away. Are there other countries who are doing uh, some kind of better job with their nuclear waste? Well, in Germany, for example, uh, the heartbeat of the anti-nuclear movement in Germany was opposing the shipments to a centralized interim storage facility in a place called Gorleben, the old border between East and West. And effectively, the movement not only shut down that proposed centralized interim storage and adjacent dump site in a flawed salt formation, but it led to the German nuclear power phase-out. The, the Greens had it from the start in the 1970s. The Social Democrats got it after Chernobyl. Those two parties, when they took power in 2000, had a phase-out agreement for nuclear power in Germany by 2020. The conservatives came in, tried to undo the phase-out and extend the licenses of the reactors. But after Fukushima, even the conservatives in Germany got it. They had to for political survival. And now there's a phase-out plan. 
Did you mentioned earlier that there is a way to dry cask highly radioactive nuclear waste? Did, were they dry casking? Is that uh, part of the solution? Well, current dry cask storage in the United States is woefully inadequate. Uh, what we're calling for as a national environmental movement is hardened on-site storage as close as possible to the point of generation as an interim measure. It has to take place anyway because the waiting line to ship out west, even if some dump site were to open today, would be as long as 50 years, 50 years of on-site risk that has to be dealt with. So fortifications against attack, get the pools emptied into a high-quality, well-designed, well-fabricated dry cask. None of this is happening. Dry cask is expensive. Is that the, the rap against it? I, I was reading about it and they said, well, it's going to cost billions of dollars to dry cask everything. It's actually relatively inexpensive. You could dry cask all of the high-level radioactive waste in this country for much less than $10 billion. That sounds like a lot of money. Compare it to if one of these places goes up in flames. And we're talking in the case of Peach Bottom in Maryland, there's a Princeton study that shows that if the pool catches fire at Peach Bottom, a Fukushima design like you have here in Illinois, up to $2 trillion in property damages downwind. Just like we said about Japan, 50 million people evacuated in northeastern Japan if that pool had caught fire. That's a bargain to do this across the country. Um, is there a, something on the horizon? With this? What does the Nuclear Regulatory Commission want to do about this? I mean, it's, it's their call ultimately, isn't it? Unfortunately, we face a major late legal filing deadline midnight tonight, and the local group Nuclear Energy Information Service is jumping in as a party against the Texas Centralized Interim Storage Facility. So the NRC is a captured agency. They will ultimately rubber stamp these centralized interim storage sites. We're fighting with a national environmental coalition to try to stop that. And uh, we can't look to the NRC for help. We need Congress to exercise oversight on the NRC because the NRC is out of control, rubber stamping these bad ideas. Kevin Camps is Radioactive Waste Watchdog for Beyond Nuclear. It's a nonprofit anti-nuclear organization, and he'll be on a panel discussion tomorrow night at 6.30, Crazy Trains. It's a panel on shipping high-level radioactive waste and crude oil by train. It's at the Nuclear Energy Information Service office. It's at 3411 West Diversity in Logan Square tomorrow night at 6.30. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kevin, and talking about the situation with radioactive waste. My pleasure. Tomorrow on Worldview, the Me Too movement has empowered women beyond the U.S. Women are now speaking up in countries like India. There's been a slew of sexual harassment scandals in India, including uh, CEOs and celebrities and politicians. And we'll talk about the elites and their bad behavior in India tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.